You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, your bi-weekly news update. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism that is produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics and Humanists, Atheists, Agnostics of Manitoba. You can email your questions and comments to podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. You can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Hi, I'm your host, Ashlyn Noble, and with me today I have Jim Newman. Hello. Greg Christensen. Hi. And Mark Borkheim. Happy New Year, everyone. So as you may have noticed, uh, we didn't get a show up the past two weeks. Uh, to be quite honest, we assumed the world was going to end. We had a party and everything, and then nothing happened. So we didn't have any content prepared. This uh, this must be a, a new and unfamiliar use of the phrase, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm free with my words, what can I say? Uh, so we're back at it in the new year, and hopefully we'll have a lot of great content to bring you this year, as we did last year. Or at least I hope you thought it was great content. So Drinking Skeptically is this Tuesday, January 8th. It is at the Wood Tavern at the Norwood Hotel. It will be a great time, and you should come out 7 o'clock or any time in the evening. The next meeting of the Humanist Atheists and Agnostics of Manitoba will be their annual general meeting. That's on January 12th at Canadian's Polo Park. That uh, starts at 4 p.m. for uh, HAM members, because it is their annual general meeting. Um, and then uh, the general public can join them uh, at the conclusion of the AGM at 5.30 p.m. Uh, they will be screening a talk by Dr. Richard Carrier. It's the talk that he gave at uh, Skepticon, which uh, those of us who went down to Skepticon uh, actually missed, but I have since watched it online, and it's really interesting. It's about uh, analyzing uh, historical claims uh, to miracles and uh, why you shouldn't necessarily take them at face value. Surprise, surprise. Uh, they'll also be having a live chat with uh, Dr. Carrier over the internet afterward uh, for Q&A and like that. So that should be neat. So once again, that's uh, January 12th at Canadian's Polo Park. So as many of you might know, Jem and Laura are expecting a little baby. And there is a story of another child in Iceland uh, as they mum muddle over names who is not allowed to use her name. So she's not much of a child anymore. Uh, she's now uh, 15, uh, but she just discovered that her name is not actually allowed to be her name. So uh, this is... Uh, I, I apologize uh, for anyone uh, who speaks Icelandic. Eric, if you're listening, um, that's you. <laughs> um, uh, her name is uh, supposed to be Blair, her last name, I believe, is Bjarker Daughter. She's 15 years old, and uh, her mother, uh, when she was born, she named, the, she named Blair Blair, B-L-A-E-R. Now, Iceland, uh, like a couple of other countries, including Denmark and Germany, they have uh, a lot of uh, state control over what people are allowed to be named, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a personal names register, which is a list of uh, 1,712 male names and 1,853 female names are allowed to be na names of children. There are several different reasons that a name might be on this uh, register. Um, uh, there are several reasons that a name might not be. 
So, for example, Blair, although it is the name of a character in a rather famous uh, Icelandic novel, and it also is an Icelandic word meaning, meaning a, a light breeze, Blair is not apparently a suitable name for a female because it takes a male pronoun, I believe. Uh, even though it was used for a female character in in this novel by uh, Nobel Prize winner Haldor Laxness. This girl, Blair, is actually identified um, simply as uh, Stulka, uh, which means girl, uh, on all of her official documents, uh, because she doesn't officially have a name, because Blair is not recognized as an appropriate name for a female. Uh, so, so she is applying basically to have her her name recognized. Now, some of the reasons that a name might not be uh, recognized as an official name in Iceland are uh, the fact that it's uh, inappropriate, um, or the fact that it uh, is unpronounceable in Icelandic, or perhaps uh, the fact that it has characters that are not found in the, uh, the uh, natural Icelandic uh, character set, um, which has 32 letters, uh, but does not, for example, include a C. So you can't have a name that has a C in it. I don't know where they get off disallowing unpronounceable names when all of Icelandic is unpronounceable. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to English people, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to take the reverse uh, stance on this. Um, and say maybe maybe a little state control on names is a good thing. You know, I could do with less Britneys and Lindsays and well, you know, referring to Lindsay Lohan. Uh, I actually actually know a couple of Lindsays that are pretty good people. So, um, so I, I assume you're not making a serious point, or, or or are you making a point about names that are that are too common? Because th this would simply restrict names and make all of all of the names more common. Uh, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm. It, it was uh, not really a serious, serious point, mm. but it is mildly annoying when you watch uh, trends in names, uh, and then you get like a pop star like Britney Spears, who is uh, thoroughly annoying to me, anyways. Uh, and then you can actually see the upward swing in childhood names. You know, uh, like a whole bunch of Britneys coming up kind of thing like you can tell what uh, what they were going for there and uh, maybe a yeah, few I... less honey boo-boos would be <laughs> oh, would I see be what you're saying too, but, you know? but I think that th this sort of control uh, w wouldn't do anything to, to address that concern actually and it could indeed exacerbate it. I mean speaking as somebody with a stupid name uh, <laughs> I, I don't see any problem with, uh, with people giving their kids fairly stupid names um, uh, I also I think it's worth pointing out that um, this list of male names and female names uh, strictly enforces a gender binary, which I think that as as uh, mm. a society we may want to move away from a little bit. Um, yeah, that's so, really the biggest problem I have with it. So so Blair. Uh, apparently, her name, even though it was used in this uh, in this novel by this famous uh, Halder Laxness, this uh, Icelandic author, um, even though her name Blair was used as a female name, uh, she can't have this name as her own because she is female and it takes a masculine article apparently in Icelandic. 
However, if she were a boy, presumably, she would be allowed to be named that. Hmm. Well, it's a good thing that the Icelandic state doesn't uh, have any control over authors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, overall, uh, I think it's just a fairly silly law. Personally, I think that the state perhaps should have final say, especially when the name is like incredibly dumb, like Moon Unit or Dweezil, or uh, there's just recently this... Uh, controversy uh, some girl in Hawaii had a really long name that she wanted to get uh, changed to something a little bit less uh, or a little bit more normal well I like I can see state intercession for example in cases where uh, a name is clearly abusive um, I mean we wouldn't yeah. want we wouldn't want parents to have we already admit that parents shouldn't have full final say on every aspect of raising their child uh, because there are things like there are things that are clearly abusive. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that if uh, if it can be adequately demonstrated that a name is intended to be abusive, then that's one thing. However, this is clearly clearly not that. Uh, I'm I, I'm actually reminded of a case in Quebec. Um, which apparently uses Napoleonic code um, rather than common law as a basis of their naming conventions. Uh, there was a case in Quebec uh, several decades ago in which um, parents were not allowed to name their child Spatule, uh, which is a <laughs> spatula. Um, um, so that, that just wasn't allowed because it's not a name. And I, and yeah. I think that's silly. Yeah. Actually, my apologies. Uh, this didn't happen in Hawaii. It happened in New Zealand. The girl's name was Tallulah Does the Hula from Hawaii. Oh, right. <laughs> I think I that, that is now. a good case for the state stepping in. Is there a cultural or traditional reason behind this? Like like some sort of well tradition that's been carried on for centuries, that kind of thing? Uh, well, I'm sure. I'm sure that that uh, is uh, is a factor. I, I mean, a lot of these laws uh, have cultural conservation uh, as at least uh, a partial reason behind them. I, I know that that is uh, a large part of it in Quebec. I mean, we have cultural restrictions on the way we name our children, too. We're just probably less aware of them. You know, the fact that mm-hmm. a child is expected to have a surname that comes from one of, that ch- uh, one of their parents, that's a cultural convention that we follow and that is not followed in Iceland. Yeah. So in, in Iceland, uh, you don't address somebody by their uh, last name uh, because their last name is simply their uh, one of their parents first names with son or daughter appended to it um, you address them by their by their first name and uh, phone books are organized uh, by first name not by last name in Iceland so so there are cultural conventions that will have a greater or lesser effect on on the way names are used um, and that probably also have an effect on these sorts of laws it's interesting to note these the countries that have these laws Iceland, Denmark, Germany, are all Germanic. Yeah, Just, uh, well, th- those are the ones that that I'm I'm aware of. It's entirely possible there are uh, there are non-Germanic uh, mm-hmm. uh, countries that also have similar laws. I think it's just overall very silly, um, as long as it's not abusive. Or um, there was a case a couple of years back where a bakery refused to make a birthday cake uh, for a couple of kids. They were 
uh, named like Aryan Justice or something. Uh, it was um, uh, it was a Walmart and uh, th- that refused to to uh, print the name on the cake, and the 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 kid's name was Adolf Hitler. Um, <laughs> the the parents uh, his uh, I, I it was either him or his his brother who had middle names of Aryan uh, nation. Okay, um, I thought it was a sister, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it could it could be it could be sister. We can we can link to this uh, <laughs> to this in the show notes. It was a few years ago, but they refused to print it on the cake. Now the parents claimed initially that they were just trying to. Uh, sort of disarm the name, you know. <laughs> One guy <laughs> ruined that name for everyone, and yeah. they were just fighting the good fight, trying to, uh, you know, show that a good person could have that name too. But it, it, yeah. upon further investigation, turned out that no, they were very clearly neo-Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> so, Greg has a technology story for us. Researchers at MIT have in theory, I guess, harnessed power from the human body. Uh, Namely, the uh, inside the cochlea, which is uh, a part of your inner ear. Apparently there uh, is ionized flow uh, in there that assists the hearing of mammals. Uh, So what they've done is put a small transistor albeit uh, in this particular experiment it was outside the ear, uh, but it is about the quarter of the size of a penny, uh, and they were able to harness, let me just get my fact sheet here, um, I believe 120 millivolts um, from uh, the inner ear of of a guinea pig. Now, this is far off from running any kind of electronics, um, what this did, however, do was power a small radio receiver um, that is, that was basically um, monitoring the kind of the in the conditions of the ear. So the technological implications for this are um, are pretty great. Is uh, the inner ear is kind of a hotspot. It's very close to major arteries, uh, so mm. perhaps. There's conceivable technology that could uh, monitor blood blood pressure per se, and you know wirelessly transmit such information to your iPhone or. Would well, a human uh, ear have more power than a guinea pig ear? I don't think so. I think it's. Well, that's a that's a very good question. Uh, it did not say in the article. Um, the voltage the voltage might be the same because it's. You're dealing with similar chemicals and similar chemical potentials. You just might be able to get more amperage out of a human ear than a guinea pig. That's I'm curious. Possibly. A, this is definitely outside of my area of expertise. Possibly a good assessment there. Um, so your average uh, AA battery um, is about 1.5 volts, I believe. Yeah. This was 120 millivolts. So there's a different, there's a couple of different strategies here. Um, I mean, you could have, uh, you could power something that requires 120 millivolts of consistent uninterrupted power, or you could save up your charge uh, for short-term bursts of uh, that require a lot more energy, but uh, of course we'll have a, a cool down time. Uh, and they they also anticipate uh, now this is not, you know, this is on you know, the horizon are going to happen tomorrow or anything, but they do believe that the upward threshold could be, uh, I believe, in the megahertz range. Um, 
which uh, they estimate could potentially power something about as complex as a modern-day cell phone, um, mm. which, of course, as electronics get more efficient and small, you know, the, the candle on that will be burning from both ends. Uh, if this technology is, is at all feasible, you will be learning to harness more and more power from the body that will power more and more um, complexity in our electronics as uh, the technology on the electronics side gets better as well. well an obvious so, uh, use for it would be powering your Bluetooth receiver in your ear. Mm -hmm. And uh, might I mention your uh, Mark of the Beast, like the, the chips? That, oh. uh, <laughs> that uh, will mark uh, the end of days. Of course, you know, the, the ultimate would be a warehouse full of guinea pigs powering a city. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, you know, I can't help but think of, you know, those scenes in the Matrix with the uh, <laughs> towers and towers and towers of human bodies, you know, <laughs> being used as giant batteries. It's... Like, if it's not this or the inevitable Borg reference that I make in pretty much any podcast I'm on, <laughs> I mean, like, seriously, uh, life is really starting to imitate art, uh, I think. Speaking of the Borg, so I'm sorry, I just, I just need to jump in here. Um, I was setting up a Plex uh, media server just just uh, yesterday, and I was uh, it was fetching media information on my Babylon 5 Um uh, video uh, episodes that I have on my server uh, from the server and <laughs> when it brought up the information for Babylon 5 it said, do you mean Star Trek Deep Space Nine? <laughs> J. Michael Straczynski would be proud. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a, that's a reference to a sort of nerdy infighting that happened between two shows which were one of which was basically ripped off of the other but uh, in in like 1993 so mm -hmm. if that went over your head feel good about yourself actually for, feel left out. but which is considered amongst uh, the nerdly to be the most original Babylon well, or Deep Space Nine uh, probably Babylon. Even I have to admit that I love Deep Space Nine. I adore Deep Space Nine. But Babylon Five was apparently being shopped around to uh, a collection of studios by J. Michael Straczynski for a few years. Uh, they rejected it, and uh, then suddenly Paramount is uh, is putting together this this Star Trek series, which is set on a space station has a large religious element to it um, and uh, uh, is, you know, a, a place that a lot of different races come through and mix together. Um, two of the races that are prominently featured, uh, uh, one of them uh, was in control of the other one's planet and basically stealing all of its resources for a while before finally the one that was peace-loving became warriors and kicked them off. <laughs> uh, so these are common themes in all the shows. Jen, <laughs> uh, that's nothing. Nothing like and those two things are completely different. So, so the the accusation has has gone unsaid by J. Michael Straczynski, from what I understand. But but the the understanding is that many features uh, are very clearly common between the two shows and. Mm -hmm. 
uh, Babylon 5 was being shopped around first. Hmm. That's not to say that Rick Berman, uh, who was doing Star Trek Deep Space Nine, was stealing ideas, but, you know, according to Will Wheaton, he wasn't a really nice guy, so <laughs> I don't know. So, speaking of not very nice guys, uh, <laughs> there's a news story from uh, about a month ago, November 30th, I believe, um, where a TV show host in the Dominican had a magician on as a guest. And to free him from evil spirits, he poured flaming liquid onto his face, which is not a very nice thing to do. Uh, so there was some back and forth about, oh, it was just a, a stunt, and whether it was on purpose or not, but no, no. It was, it was intentional. He meant to set him on fire. Uh, it was... Uh, the magician did not know about it in, ahead of time, and there's now an arrest warrant out for this guy. Uh, you can there's video online because this was a TV show. Uh, he was burned on a, a lot of his face as well as his hand, where he tried to stop the you know he was beating his yeah. face trying to get it off. So now there's an arrest warrant out for this guy, and apparently um, this is there's a lot of this belief in the Dominican that uh, that this can that fire can cleanse evil spirits and act as a blessing, but to not tell somebody about this beforehand and just to light them on fire, really not cool. And uh, there's actually a member of the Winnipeg Skeptics, uh, Scott Burton, who commented on this story and said, you know, wow, you know, I've done magic shows in the Dominican, that's scary. <laughs> so, so, so am I understanding correctly that this guy was invited on the show and was it the host who poured this stuff on him? That's right, yeah. He was a guest on the show. They asked him on to do magic. So they then, asked him on, like, as a trap? Because he was an evil sorcerer? And they're like, we're going to trick this evil sorcerer who does, who does pretty lame magic tricks onto our show and then burn him with fire? It's just, it's so bizarre, right? And it, apparently it's like an astrology variety show? <laughs> and yeah. and the, the liquid that was poured on him apparently is a, uh, a liquid that's used in voodoo rituals. For well, it was a cologne from what I read. Yes, a cologne that is used it's in voodoo rituals. Cologne? Yeah. Okay. Uh, one type Sorry? of magic trying to destroy, destroy another. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, it pays to be skeptical. Yeah, and so the um, this guy, the host, I'm going to butcher the name, but Barazarte... Um, actually fled to the states, and uh, the Dominican Republic is trying to get the U.S. to uh, arrest and extradite him to face prosecution for this. Good luck. With, good luck with that. We know that many politicians in the United States believe in witches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. that's just unbelievably ridiculous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Mark, tell us about something else that's unbelievably ridiculous. Well, spe uh, keeping with the fire theme... We're full of uh, segues today. <laughs> well, last month, an Indiana man uh, pleaded guilty to setting an Ohio mosque on fire. And apparently he told the judge he was motivated by media accounts, specifically those on Fox News, suggesting Muslims were threatening Americans and were in control of parts of the federal government. It's It's quite scary when you read the details of the story uh, just moments after 
several worshippers had left, he entered the building. He had on him a gun and several cans of gas, and he had more guns in his car. So it's lucky nobody actually died. Mm -hmm. um, he poured the gas on a big prayer carpet there, set it on fire, caused about a million dollars worth of damage. Really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you read what he says there, that you know, that he said he knew only what he got from Fox News and didn't know that they and did know that they don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior. And he says also the radio and Fox News accounts suggesting Muslims were killing us and were in control of the Department of Homeland Security and the White House. What? Uh, yeah. And it's, you know the first thing I think of is like, wow. Muslims are the new Jews, because this is exactly the same sort of thing that people used to say, and some people still do say about uh, Jewish people. Yeah, you know, they're just these evil people in control, and they have to be stopped. Yeah, they. It's the sort of othering behavior that that you you see all yes. the time with with minority groups. They they ha they have a weird religion, or they look different, or what have you. It's it's horrible. Um, it's you know like obviously it should go without saying, but unfortunately, uh, sometimes when you're talking with atheists and you express any sort of support for uh, minority religious groups, they think you're being soft on whatever religion it is. You know, obviously, I think that that Islam is a silly religion uh, in the in the same way that I think that Christianity is a silly religion, in the in the particular sense that I think that it makes untrue claims about the world. Uh, yeah. But these these people are uh, a persecuted minority, uh, and they they have rights just like the rest of us, and this is horrendous. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I know there's a big deal about freedom of speech and, you know, being able to speak your mind, but sometimes I think it goes a little bit too far and, you know, whipping up hatred against a, a minority group like this can lead to bad things. Yeah, and we do have hate speech laws in Canada. In Canada. try and, you know, limit some of this as to what you can legally say about a particular group before it's labeled as hate speech. I'm not sure how well it's, uh, or how often it's used, or how successful it is. You know, it's definitely, a, I'm glad we have those type of laws here. I don't think uh, you know, ha having it the way it is in the States is uh, a good thing. It's too easy to spread hatred. I actually really enjoyed the episode uh, that we did uh, where it was Ali and... A few other people, Jeff Olson might have been there, where they were talking about uh, hate speech laws and things like that. It was, I learned a lot from that episode. I was actually going to say that was the Justice episode that I hosted. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, for the record, our, our hate speech laws are, they aren't very effectual. I mean, a lot of people get, you know, like uh, saying in the media, you know, accusing someone of being, uh, of, uh, uttering hate speech is, is one thing. Getting an actual successful conviction, a uh, completely different story. Uh, we went over uh, several specific cases, and uh, a lot of it, uh, I mean, the real key focus there is an intent to incite violence or hatred. 
<laughs> so you could say all sorts of vile things about whoever you want, but if you can't credibly, I guess, incite the masses or aren't trying to stir up public discontent, um, uh, you don't you, you don't qualify as, as being convicted under the hate crime legislation. So Fox News would definitely qualify then. Um, <laughs> that's the thing. I don't think they would. I don't see. I mean, Fox spews out, you know, ridiculous vitriol that I personally consider hate speech. But they at no point, you know, do they advocate committing violence against such, you know, uh, against specific groups. You know, they certainly marginalize groups like, uh, for example, atheists. Mm. Um, you know, with their war on Christmas, which we recently just uh, went through. Um, yeah, we won. Course, we won that again this year, right? I th I think so. I, well, it's not I Christmas know. anymore, so we must have won. <laughs> sure. Good job, yeah. everyone. Back, <laughs> back to work. Anyways, um, the few convictions that we have had under uh, Canadian hate crime legislation were for uh, mostly against one organization, if I recall. It was like um, something, something radio. And they were literally broad, like uh, printing pamphlets, leaving voicemails on people's uh, machine, you know, doing cold calling and actually advocating for violence against um, Jews, I believe. Um, so uh, other, other uh, notable cases, you know, were, were thrown out. Um, like uh, uh, David Henneke, I believe. He was the native chief um, that basically said something similar to, you know, Hitler should have finished the job, something right. along those yeah. lines. You know, not a hate crime. That is not a hate crime. Uh, profoundly ignorant, yes, not a hate crime. Hmm. That's interesting. So, yeah, they are a lot looser than I, I thought. And I, I should I should note that I do think that that was a really good episode, and you, Greg, and Allie, and Jeff did a great job on that, and I actually learned a lot from it. So uh, feel free to, to check out our our archives if you didn't if if you missed uh, episode twenty three, justice and hate crimes. Yeah, I'm so, I'm just going off of memory. I didn't I wasn't expecting to talk about it. <laughs> Speaking of horrible monsters, there's a recent uh, story in the news just the past couple of days, I think it came out right before Christmas, um, about a uh, river monster. Uh, now this isn't a, this isn't a cryptozoological claim, this is actually a, uh, a scientific claim. Um, there's an international team of paleontologists, including one from Alberta, that recently made a fascinating discovery in a bauxite mine in Hungary. They found the remains of several mosasaurs, these are giant like river monsters from the Cretaceous period. So these, uh, these were lizards, but not, they're not dinosaurs. They're actual true lizards. They're cold-blooded. Uh, they're massive. Uh, they breathed air. They had uh, paddle-like fins. And they grew to up to 16 meters long. Uh, that's more than 50 feet for our American listeners or any Canadian listeners who went to school before 1970. Uh, these... <laughs> These fossils are particularly exciting for evolutionary biologists because aside from being really cool, I mean, like, you should see the, the pictures that they, ha they have of these things. Um, they're they're uh, artists' renditions uh, of what, what these creatures would have looked like uh, based on the fossils, and they're just, they're really cool. They look sort of like, um, uh, 
sort of like giant snake alligators <laughs> a little bit. Awesome. Um, so th- these fossils are particularly exciting for evolutionary biologists uh, because uh, these particular mosasaurs seem to have lived in freshwater instead of saltwater, and they actually had legs like land-dwelling lizards instead of uh, instead of exclusively sort of paddle-shaped limbs. Which uh, so, so they're they're thinking this is a completely new subspecies, and they're mm-hmm. reevaluating sort of the evolutionary path that these uh, that these species took. Uh, which is which is really neat. Now I'm I'm sure uh, there's probably you know Ken Ham is probably already claiming that uh, that this invalidates the Darwinian model of neo evolution. <laughs> um, of course he's saying it in a in a, a sexier accent, um, and uh, he he looks slightly more like a werewolf than I do. But you but you get the gist. Um, uh, no, this doesn't at all invalidate any part of evolutionary biology this uh, we are uh, observing uh, new facts and we uh, science builds models to fit the facts and when we get new facts they incorporate they are incorporated into the models that we build um, and so we now have more information and so our model can be more detailed because the evolution of these uh, uh, mosasaurs is more complex than we originally thought which is great because that's one of the cool things about evolutionary science and science in general is that it's a self-correcting discipline. Yay, transitional fossils. <laughs> Huzzah. I think it's really cool, but um, again, it's, it's not something that is really that surprising at this point because we've found so many really awesome things. Hooray for science. Pretty much. So, is that a good segue uh, to talk about some Polish cheese? It's not a good segue if you say the word segue. (laughs) But yes, go for it. Can we do some creative editing and and make that? No. (laughs) No editing. Um, All right. Anyways, uh, so we were talking about Polish cheese, if I recall. So in, uh, in modern-day Poland, uh, they found evidence of perforated pottery, um, i.e. pottery with holes in it, um, that was, uh, well, looks like modern-day strainers uh, to some degree. So upon testing it, they found the uh, hallmarks of fatty lactic acids, I believe, i.e. Uh, evidence of dairy products uh, that they were... Hmm. straining milk. So generally the the one thing that that um, points to is uh, the straining of curds from milk, uh, which is part of uh, the process of making cheese. I believe Um, that in this uh, this pottery they actually found rennet, right? I think they found the enzymes that point to dairy. Yeah, so so rennet is an enzyme from um, from a stu- from a stomach. Actually, you kill an animal and get rennet from it from its stomach. Um, it has to be a mammal, and that is used to uh, basically co- coagulate the the milk uh, and the proteins clump together, and uh, you get cheese. It was uh, fatty acids extract- extracted from unglazed pottery. The presence of milk residues in sieves, which look like modern cheese strainers, constitutes the earliest direct evidence for cheese making. And what's very peculiar about this, um, obviously it's no surprise that at some point 
somebody made cheese for the first time um, is that it's uh, the pottery dated to about 7,000 years ago. Uh, and there's a couple of things that I found rather interesting about that timeline. At about the same time, uh, another technology was kind of propagating across human civilizations at the time, and that was the wheel. So uh, to think that food processing techniques came, you know, relatively, you know, soon and, and when compared to something, you know, as fundamental as the wheel, uh, I found to be quite uh, interesting. Uh, generally, you know, one would think, you know, if you had to pick a technology, uh, pick the wheel and worry about the cheese later. Mm. But apparently, <laughs> apparently we like our cheese. And the second I certainly thing, do. Uh, give me a nice double-smoked cheddar any day. As do I. It's, it's and, perhaps uh, not surprising that they, they invented the cheese wheel at the same time. Oh. <laughs> that, that's how wheels were invented, actually. Exactly. You, you, I you needed a way to store cheese, and it just happened to make a great uh, transportation device at the same time. <laughs> Two birds meet, meet one single stone. Yeah. Um, and the other, the other point uh, was that at, the t at that time in our evolutionary history, we were all lactose intolerant. Um, As and, adults, anyway. Oh, I see. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. of course, because uh, mammals tend to uh, like their milk uh, when they're young. Yeah, yeah, we, but we lose that tolerance as, as we age. But uh, modern-day cheese, um, well, well, the simplistic method of making cheese, if I can recall correctly from my cheese research this afternoon, is basically you add an acid, such as lemon juice or something like that, maybe some other citric acid to milk, uh, it curdles the milk, creates the curds, you strain the curds, you knead the curds, and you have a very inoffensive cheese um, that actually uh, is slightly less likely to uh, cause the extreme uh, gas and stomach pains that a regular cheese uh, would give someone who is lactose intolerant. So this would be a very good initial step to moving moving over to uh, consuming a lot of varied lactose-rich products, I guess. Um, oh, interesting. But this, I always thought um, the French cheeses cheese. were the worst. Well, um, I don't know. Uh, I know people who are lactose intolerant who have no problem with, like, Parmesan and really aged cheeses because the lactose is all gone from them, but really fresh cheeses like farmer's cheese or cottage cheese or whatever um, have still have a lot of lactose in them. But I guess they're just slightly less lactose than just straight milk. Yeah. Uh, when you turn milk into cheese, you, you get rid of the lactose, basically. Um, I'm sorry. When I say get rid of, I mean you, you greatly reduce the lactose content. Okay. So if you're lactose intolerant, um, uh, cheese is a much better choice than milk, for example. Still not necessarily something you want to eat. Well, keeping with old things, scientists uh, are abuzz about a coal-colored rock from Mars that landed in the Sahara Desert. A year-long analysis revealed it's quite different from other Martian meteorites. Not only is it older than most, it also contains more water. 
they say the baseball meteor size meteorite, estimated to be about 2 billion years old, is strikingly similar to the volcanic rocks examined by the NASA rovers Spirit and Opportunity on the Martian surface. Now, how cool is that? Piece of rock that was dislodged from Mars from probably an asteroid strike millions of years ago, floats its way on through space, it hits Earth in the Sahara Desert, and now all of a sudden we have it. They, they have approximately about 65 Martian rocks, mostly coming from the Antarctica or the Sahara Desert. It has a chemical signature that they look for that tells, it, tells them where it came from. Uh, during the testing of this rock, they, they saw that it released more water than other Martian meteorites, about approximately about 6,000 parts per million. Cool. Yay, Mars. Yes, I know. I, I always find that amazing that they can actually, you know, not only can they, not only do we get pieces of rock from Mars, but that they can actually determine that it was from Mars. Yeah, that is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. All we need now is a piece of teapot from uh, the orbit around Mars. Yes. <laughs> and then we would believe in Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Good night. Good night, Ashlyn. Good night, listeners. Good night. You have been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Our music is provided by the very talented Ian Leung. You can email your questions, comments, or criticism to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at slash podcast. <laughs>